Hey, what's up, everybody? Um, before we get into this week's episode, I just want to give a quick programming note. Um, this is coming out on June 28th. We've got two more weeks of interviews after this, and then Untenured Tracks is going to take a break for an indeterminate period of time. Um, I have a couple of ideas uh, that are both pretty big uh, for the direction of the show in the future, um, and so I need to take some time and kind of think about whether or not uh, and how I will be able to pursue either or both of those. Um, in the meantime, this week, we've got a very important conversation with Dr. Brandon Jett about his work on the history of race and policing. This is episode 73 of Untenure Tracks. With a lot of people, I'm working on a couple of projects all at the same time, which is probably the best way to go about doing um, a bunch of incomplete things. Um, but one that I'm really excited about that got a little traction locally, um, I study race, crime, criminal justice, and violence. And so uh, a lot of my, my early work was on lynchings in Northeast Texas, and I've always been interested in that, not, not the actual act of violence, but how people respond and react to these things and defend or, or, or kind of that. Lynchings, and so when 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 I moved to LaBelle, which is a small uh, town in the middle of a rural county in, in South Florida, um, I reached out to the local history museum. I always I always want to do local history stuff. I think it's a great way to get students interested and involved, uh, and, and kind of endear yourself to the community. And so uh, the local historian was like, "Oh, you know, we had a lynching here," and I started looking into it. Uh, and it's it's kind of unique in in a lot of ways. It's not unique in that. There was a lynching in a small southern town um, mm-hmm. in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, which is, is something that's kind of interesting. Um, people in LaBelle don't really like to talk about it because they think that, that it makes their town look bad. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a small town. A lot of the families that, that were there in the 1920s are, are still here today. So there's kind of some reticence to talk about it, um, mm-hmm. which I try to say, yeah, like, yes, it's horrific. But at the same time, you could probably pick any southern town uh and there would also be a lynching so it's not really that unique but what is unique is the response uh which is like an attempted prosecution uh an arrest of 14 white men uh after after this um coroner's inquest where they're calling in over 100 witnesses and subpoenas the florida national guard comes down to provide some sense of security they got these two gatlin guns just to make sure nothing goes poorly oh my god um, and they That's like unheard of. Sorry? <laughs> That's unheard of. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they arrest like 14 or 17 people. I can't remember the exact numbers. Um, and, and it's going pretty well. It all falls apart in between um, the, the initial coroner's inquest and the arrests and then the uh, grand jury hearing, which or grand jury trial, which comes several months later for a number of reasons. So no mm-hmm. one ever gets prosecuted for it. But, but I always tell people this, this attempted prosecution is, is, is a big deal. Yeah, uh, especially considering the governor at the time of Florida, uh, most people are are pretty confident that he was part of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, uh, but nonetheless, he's sending in um, 
the National Guard to provide some sense of security. So I've been working on um, a digital history project mm-hmm. um, with students here at, at Florida Southwestern State College that, that kind of uh, will act as a repository of primary and secondary sources related to the lynching um, and the attempted prosecutions. Uh, it's got like a, a brief overview. Mm-hmm. I've got some students working on digital graphics uh, to kind of, of provide some like visual representation of what happened because there there's one photograph, at least one that I can find, I'm sure. In someone's attic somewhere there's there's a photograph of, of something yeah. but um so I, w- I was kind of thinking like catholic churches i don't know if you're catholic or you know anyone who was but they kind of tell the stories of like the crucifixion through these series of like paintings and, and stained glass windows mm-hmm. so, um students are working on all these, these really cool things they're conducting interviews with locals to talk about like how this story is passed down over generations and, oh, wow. and how people's memory or, or understanding of what happened kind of is along the lines of what the historical record suggests or how it's yeah. really different. Um, so it's a really cool project. Um, FSW supported it with like a $5,000 internal grant. And then oh, I got nice. an external grant um, to, to really make it awesome. Uh, so that's one um, I'm really excited about. It involves students doing fantastic work. Um, and it's something local that, that they're really excited about. And, and all the local students, they really tell me like, we feel like we're finally getting uh, the real history of, of LaBelle, which is really fantastic. So that's one that, that, that I'm really excited about. Um, I'm working on another local history project. Um, that's, that's less kind of academic, but uh, there was a woman here named Selma Daniels, and she was the first black educator here in LaBelle. There's a small black population here in the 1920s and 1930s, and she opens the first school. And so she's been described as the Mary McLeod Bethune of, of LaBelle. Um, and so um, um, I'm fundraising uh, for a scholarship in her name that will oh, help cool. send the local students from Hendry County, where we live, where she lived, um, to FSW to get their Bachelor of Education degree. Um, mm-hmm. and hopefully continue her legacy of providing education in this area. Um, so that's a super cool story. I've I've written some articles in the local paper and, and just keep recording interviews with people. We got a, a story on the local news during Black History Month. No, oh, nice. I did a piece on it, which is really cool, and hopefully that 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 gains a little traction. Um, but yeah, just just working on these local history projects that kind of involve students um, and the community, and also amplifies the voices of the Black community that often feels like their stories are told. That's so cool. That's really cool. I uh, I've been trying to brainstorm ways to do similar stuff here, but I don't have a history background, and so I very much feel like I'm kind of stumbling in the dark. Um, but you know, the best thing to do is just ask locals. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of what I did. I just walked down, like, what are the cool stories? And then people say, oh, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And yeah. it's there. It's just not really kind of formalized in ways that some of the other narratives are. Yeah, so there's there's a cool story here. <laughs> but when I tell you it, you'll understand why I'm a little <laughs> a little weary of um, of pursuing it. So. Uh, I work at Wilkes University, um, and across the, the Susquehanna River is Kingston, Pennsylvania. And Kingston, Pennsylvania is where Russell Buffalino lived, who was the, the head of uh, organized crime in New England um, at, the, at its peak, <laughs> really. Um, and so uh, if you've seen, um, oh gosh, the Irishman, the, the four-hour Irishman, uh, 
uh, based on the book, I heard you paint houses. Um, Russell Buffalino features prominently in there, um, in for his role allegedly in uh, engineering the Kennedy assassination and the uh, disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. So I think oh, wow. it would be, uh, yeah. There's a there's a actually a lamppost that I, I drive by every day on my way to work that has a Hoffa '96 bumper sticker, still in pristine condition <laughs> on it. Um, <laughs> And so I think it would be really cool to have my students talk to their families about like, what do they know about um, the Buffalino crime family and uh, uh, Hoffa and, and, and all, and all of that, like what, what if anything has been passed on within their families, mm-hmm. but because I also know that the area is still <laughs> a little, a, a little mobbed up. I'm a little, a little wary of like sticking yeah, just a, a smidge. Um, I'm a little wary of sticking my nose where maybe it doesn't belong with this one. Um, it's funny when I interviewed here, um, my colleagues drove me by Buffalino's house. That was part of the tour. I'm like, yeah, he used to pay the paperboy to to write down the license plates of every car parked on the street, so he could figure out if there were any uh, any undercover cops watching him that day. Yeah, yeah. Like that's really cool. Students would love it. Do I want to die? <laughs> I want a pair of cement shoes. Yeah, you know, there's there's another story that, that a lot of the students want me to do here, uh, but I didn't know this until I started um, kind of exploring small towns a little bit more, but during like the 1970s and 1980s, I guess even into the 1990s, uh, small towns are kind of hubs for drug trafficking um, because you can fly small planes in relatively uh, undetected. And um, so there's all these stories locally, uh, one about how like a sheriff, either in the 1970s or 1980s, I don't know exactly, was involved in that. Um, and one of the sheriffs got killed. Uh, and so all my students are kind of, oh, this, this, this would be so fascinating. Um, and part of me is kind of feeling like you, like, yes, this would be really cool. At the same time, a lot of these people are still around. And then there's all these rumors that like, you know, it never left. It just kind of morphed. I don't know how true those are, but I don't really want to find out uh, yeah. for, for fear of what the reprisal might be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have another story that I'll tell you when we're done. Uh, this is why I need a Patreon for this show because really people listening to this right now are like, why the hell are you not, are you teasing something? You're teasing um, the story yeah, on the next I, episode. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't say it on, on mic. <laughs> um, uh, so like, I want to, I want to talk about the, um, the stuff with the lynching. So why, why was the lynching in LaBelle? Like, why did it have that such an, like a more I guess aggressive or proactive response when we know like forever in the U S lynchings did not, did not have that sort of like uh, any kind of attempt at prosecution. Sure. Yeah. I, I think it's a confluence of factors. Um, people laugh when I say this, but LaBelle was kind of famous in the mid 1920s. Um, and it was famous, uh, largely because Florida was going through this land boom in the 1920s where people from the Northeast in particular, just like buying plots of land in South Florida, they'd never been to for a bunch of money and then just speculating and trading these things. So like <laughs> land in the middle of LaBelle that had like no roads were going for an exorbitant amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also famous because Henry Ford acquired like several thousands of acres out here um, for a number of reasons. He had lived in Fort Myers. He was friends with a local guy here who was trying to start a bunch of different businesses. So he mortgaged a lot of the properties that he owned, hmm. uh, as, as collateral for a loan with Henry Ford. 
he went belly up. So Henry Ford got all this land. But the speculation was this is going to be the new like Detroit, right? Like yeah. Henry Ford is buying all this land to start these rubber plantations. He wasn't, uh, but that was the speculation. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, people were like, "Let's buy land in LaBelle. Yeah. Um, like a couple of months, it goes belly up, and then there's this big, big land bust. There's there's hurricanes that come through uh, that that really destroyed this this land boom that was going on. This kind of bubble precursor to the Great mm-hmm. Depression, right? Um, so LaBelle was kind of famous in that regard. This was, this was like Henry Ford's next big project. Um, but it was also a, a relatively new town and new County. It had just been organized. It had just carved itself away from Lee County, which is, mm-hmm. is um, on the West coast of Florida, Fort Myers is a County seat. Uh, so they were trying to establish themselves as something other than this like rough and tumble, um, kind of uncivilized area. And so right at the same time that they're trying to do this, uh, this lynching takes place. And so I think a lot of it was this kind of battle between those who believed in this kind of extrajudicial way of handling things. And then some of the newcomers who, who were like, no, we really want to make this uh, an actual town, an actual city where people want to come and invest. And they're not going to come invest in a place where mobs are running rampant. So I think there was an element of that. Huh. Uh, this was also like, I want to say the third or fourth lynching that took place in 1926 in like a relatively short amount of time. So lynchings had kind of waned into the 1920s. And then there's this blip in Florida. And so the governor, I think, was was, was trying to play PR a little bit and downplay this. Um, so I think that's that's kind of what's involved in some of this this mm-hmm. uh, local reaction um, in terms of why it, it, it dissipates and, and, and completely falls apart at the grand jury stage. Uh, there's a number of reasons, like different attorneys are brought in. There's a hurricane that kind of diverts attention away from from the case. All the money that was coming in coming in from around the state and around the country to support the prosecution uh, dries up relatively quickly. And I think you also have an element of the local prosecutor, like trying to play both sides, um, where he was like, "I'm trying to do something, but at the same time, I'm an elected position and I live here, and I don't want to alienate all of those people who were involved." So I think it's more of a confluence of factors. Um, but it's 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 an important step nonetheless. I mean, nothing came of it, but uh, that wasn't a foregone conclusion in June when it looked like uh, some people might actually be held accountable. Yeah, the state the state flexed its muscles a little bit. So, do you think the Henry Ford thing is why the governor uh, mobilized the National Guard as part of this? Or no, I don't know how much Henry Ford really plays into it, but I think it it, it does kind of suggest like, like in 1925, Henry Ford is making LaBelle kind of famous. 1926, LaBelle is also nationally famous because of this lynching. Um, so, like, if you look at the newspapers, it's getting mm-hmm. covered uh, across the country, which is kind of hmm. bizarre in a lot of ways. And so I think just yeah. it occurred in the 1920s, which is kind of an aberration of this would have happened in 1893, probably not much coverage, but because it's in the 1920s, that matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the governor got involved probably because of all of the attention it was garnering statewide and, and across the country, Florida. They want to make it look like a decent place for investment. The land boom and then mm-hmm. bust had created some problems. So I think, again, it's, it's, it's largely a PR stunt uh, yeah. on behalf of the state. Yeah. That's so interesting. So what about the, what about the, um, the circumstance of the circumstances rather of the lynching itself? Like, is there anything, anything that stands out to you there? It's pretty unique. There's also some really interesting questions. So the way the story goes is um, there, as LaBelle and Hendry County is attempting to make itself this, this real town, this real city, uh, they, they raise a bond issue to raise half a million dollars um, in a town that has about a thousand residents. 
uh, to complete the construction of a highway that'll go through the county and connect it to the east and west coasts uh, of Florida. This was going to be the new lifeline um, of the bell. And so, and the story goes that locals were promised jobs if they voted on this bond issue, which they did. And then when the bond passed, they hire a construction company from outside of the state that brings in black laborers. Um, so in a town of about a thousand people, I want to say there was like 30 black families in, mm-hmm. in 1926. Um, the, the contractor that comes in, the story goes, brings about 300 black men to work on the road. So you can imagine what that influx does to this, this small town who yeah. is already a little upset about the fact that they are not getting these jobs that they felt like they were promised. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so tensions are high. The Ku Klux Klan makes an appearance at, at, at a, a fair, a little festival that's going on in the park and they make a, a public donation to one of the churches. This is like the 1925 plan. Uh, so tensions are a little high. And so uh, the precipitating factor to the lynching is one of the guys from the road crew, Henry Patterson, who we don't know a whole lot about black man in his early twenties uh, from outside of the state working as part of this road crew is thirsty. And so for some reason he, he leaves where he's working and goes to, to this house that he sees. He crosses the fence comes up to the back porch uh, of this house where a woman named Patty Crawford is there by herself or, or has her child with her. I can't remember uh, exactly for both also. Um, so she, she gets scared. She sees a black man at her back door, gets scared, runs from the house screaming. Henry Patterson also runs from the house. Locals hear a white woman scream and run and see her and a black man running and they assume an assault has occurred. Uh, so that starts the manhunt. Um, and this just just kind of devolves into to all those those typical things we hear about lynchings, violence, dragging through the streets, and the like. But the really fascinating thing is, Annie Crawford comes out relatively quickly and says, "Nothing happened. This guy didn't do anything." Uh, and so there's no one that I've talked to that really thinks Henry Patterson did anything wrong, yeah. uh, other than violate some some social customs uh, yeah. that that kind of percolate the south. Like, why did he cross the fence? Why did he go up to this woman's house? Why didn't he get water from his employer? Uh, yeah. All these kind of, kind of odd questions. But nonetheless, everyone that I've talked to, this poor guy just wanted a drink of water, and this is what happened uh, as a result. So it's one of the only cases that I've come across where no one is saying he did anything wrong. Like Typically, um, African-American men were charged with either murder or uh, sexual assault. And yeah. So it can be kind of hard to, to be like, well, you know, this guy was lynched, but he did a bad thing. Uh, but that's not the case with Henry Patterson. Um, I've, I've talked to some very conservative people who say this, this was messed up and, and, and something needs to be done to kind of remember uh, this guy's life. So those circumstances are interesting. The story of Hattie Crawford is also interesting. She she was from um, Henry County originally and moved up north, I want to say near Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her husband was killed by an African-American man there in Jacksonville, and he was subsequently lynched. She moves down to um, LaBelle, uh, sees this, this black man on her back porch, screams, uh, he is lynched. Uh, so she's got these, this, this really interesting connection to two of these things happening in relatively short amounts of time um, that, that, that I think is something that, that, that probably deserves more, more investigation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, I don't believe in coincidences, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but trying to figure out like what what that could possibly be like, is just I think maybe I mean maybe it's not a coincidence but but maybe the circumstances like you can imagine how someone who if, if we believe the story right, whose husband was killed by an African American man all of a sudden gets startled when she sees an African American mm-hmm. man kind of unexpectedly show up at her doorstep 
At the same time, you can understand that she might really know what happens in some of these cases. And perhaps that's why she was so vocal in her yeah. opposition, saying, hey, nothing, yeah. nothing happened. Let's not do this. Yeah, um, it's it's a really interesting story, not only in in and of itself with lynching and the investigation, uh, but also just just what her story. Yeah, no, I think that definitely explains why she why she spoke up right away because you don't see that in other cases, right? No, it can be be uh, very problematic um, in a lot of ways. So yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting threads that I'd like to continue to grasp at and and mm-hmm. just continue to see how locals understand this case. False accusations just lasting decades and then kind of shrugged off as like almost like a deathbed confession. Like, oh yeah, by the way, I lied about that. I got right, that. right. Like with Emmett Till, uh, yeah. we saw that that came out. I think it was Timothy Tyson who like, you know, several decades later does the interview. She's like, yeah, nothing really happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This was like right in the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So why didn't they listen to her? Like, do you, is there anything, do you have anything on that? Like why? Well, the timing of when she tells people that this didn't happen uh, is unclear. So some people okay. say after, after the lynching took place, that's when she tells people. Some people say she tried to do it as quickly as possible. Um, probably, like, once people's passions were riled up, um, they're not going to listen to anybody saying, no, oh, nothing really happened. Um, so I'm assuming, based on, on the research I've done, she kind of steps forward in a more vocal way after. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Well... Okay, <laughs> so I guess I'm just not clear on like how how quickly did how quickly did it happen? Like the, how quickly was was Henry Patterson lynched? Uh, a few hours. Um, so he runs and hides away. A mob is formed. They start searching for him. The sheriff inexplicably leaves and goes like 14 miles outside of town to look for him out there. Um, so he's he's absent. A lot of of prominent people in in town are involved in this. He's captured hiding next to um, the river and then he's kind of paraded through town and, and a series, I don't want to get into violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like within a matter of hours, um, you know, a mob is formed and yeah. on the manhunt. So uh, you can kind of imagine why someone might be a little reticent to kind of jump in front of this this kind of drunken, yeah. angry, violent, vehement mob. I mean, they like went, at, went in front of one of the, um, I want to say city council members apartments and they were like we dare you to come out we dare you to come out and stop us and this guy just hides right um so you can imagine how someone might not want to be like hey hey guys um yeah stop doing this. yeah yeah that makes sense but all the same man the timing is 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 a little unclear like i'm, yeah. I'm assuming maybe she was trying to get the word out but just didn't have this like public venue for which she could do it yeah uh, it's it's just not clear. yeah plus a woman in 1926 like people may not be inclined to listen to her to begin with. <sighs> That's interesting. So like, what are your, what are your students reactions to this story? So a lot of them like it. I mean, not, not like it in the sense of like, this is a fantastic thing, but I think here locally, you know, small town, so much of, of the history is presented as like, this is a perfect place. Um, nothing bad has ever happened here. It's a great small town. Um, and a lot of the early history focuses on like the early, what they call pioneer families that came and settled and kind of roughed it. Um, and I think they like hearing some of this, this, this kind of nitty gritty stuff. Yeah. Right? Um, so the white students respond really well to it. Um, some of, of our like Latino, Latina students respond really well to it. African American students, some of them didn't know about it. Some of them are like, this is the first story that my dad told me whenever we moved to LaBelle. 
yeah. uh, kind of thing. So um, I think I think students just have this real thirst for you know what they kind of term the real history, even, <laughs> even if it's kind of broad stuff, right? Like talking about slavery or talking about Jim Crow. Uh, but also locally, I think there's just this thirst, this hunger. Like they know they're being cheated um, when 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 things are presented as just this like rosy, perfect, picturesque place. And like I know stuff happened here. Even when I first came here and and I started talking to the local um, clerk of court just to see what kind of court records they had that I could maybe use in my class, they're saying this is just a pristine place. There wasn't a whole lot going on in in the 1920s. I'm looking through the arrest log, right, and it's like. Drunken assault, drunken assault, drunken assault, <laughs> drunken assault, embezzlement, fraud. You're like something's happening here uh, that 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 is is of interest. So students respond really well to it. Um, they they really got excited about doing the interviews with people. Um, you know, they were a little nervous at first because they were recorded and like that. But I had them do it in teams, mm-hmm. um, and so they really got a kick out of doing stuff like that. And just um, like we we went to the courthouse and kind of somewhat clandestinely. We're looking for files and things like that. So I think they they really responded well, not only to the story, uh, but also to the process of kind of uncovering some of this stuff that that's out there, but not necessarily easy for them to find and just go like do a quick. That's that's so interesting. Yeah, uh, I I kind of got lost imagining what it would be like to live someplace that pretends it has this pristine. Uh, uh, background because uh, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, very much does not does not behave that way. And uh, I grew up outside of Detroit as well, <laughs> so uh, that that sort of fake idyllic uh, uh, small town life just seemed with with like. I mean, it's very Southern Gothic too. If you think about it, <laughs> everything's great on the surface, but you just go a little bit underneath, and it's everybody's got skeletons in their closet, right? Um, and I think it's it's just part of the you know, like small towns. I mean, all places are a little hesitant; like they don't want to be painted as something negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as as I try to encourage my students and and locals here, I mean, I I live in Labelle. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to say it's it's not about making any place or body look bad. It's just about understanding the totality of, of the history that happened here. Um, and I also tried to do a somewhat positive spin on a very negative story, which is the attempted prosecution is something that, that is mm-hmm. kind of positive in a very negative and problematic story. Yeah. Um, so I try to kind of thread that needle. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm thinking about this in terms of like how I would teach it or, or what my students might respond to this the story here in classes that are largely sociology and criminology. And I, I think like the interesting things would be, um, well, number one, like looking for any kind of differences among, uh, the students in terms of their own racial background, racial identity and for, for how they're perceiving this case, because I, I don't know, how would my, how would my people respond to it? That's that's interesting. I might have to work this in <laughs> into, into my curriculum just to see <laughs> see what they would do because I don't know. I don't know. Like my students very frequently view the state as the good guys, mm-hmm. um, and so if they, how would they respond if I was like, this is a, a rarity that they they were going to prosecute this this lynching, but then things fell apart for all for all these myriad reasons that those investigations always fell apart. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they would do. Well, so it's 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 kind of fascinating too, in that like you know, so the state we kind of think of it as this this like omnipresent thing that kind of acts in unison all the time. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I don't necessarily see local criminal justice actors as, as kind of participating in some of this stuff, at least not, not consciously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also study policing and, and I think sometimes the perspective of police is that they go out uh, to like impose the state on people. But I think when you talk to individual officers, that's not what they think they're doing. And it's not like this conscious thing where like, here's our marching orders from the state and we go and, yeah. and abuse communities that are marginalized and things like that. Uh, I think it's a little more complicated than that. So, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if I would say like state broadly speaking is the good guy in this story. I think there are, there are some people who are acting out of self-interest in ways that, that kind of look good on the surface, but I've even had locals uh, who swear to me that, that, that the county prosecutor who was trying, at least in my perspective, to do the right thing and bring people to justice was actually not that good of a guy uh, and, and was really kind of being self-serving and wanted to make it look like he was doing something while really mm-hmm. doing nothing and let everybody kind of pass all of this. So um, it's a little more complicated than like who's good, who's <laughs> bad. Um, but I think that's where history is, is fun and engaging and kind of exploring yeah. these nuances uh, and not just kind of painting people in these People are complicated, uh, yes. and they do things for complicated reasons. Yeah, yeah. No, and you hit on an interesting point there too. Like, it's so difficult, especially in, in this country where we're so we're socialized so heavily to think of ourselves as individuals first, and and not couldn't possibly be a part of any kind of larger system. Um, when very obviously we are. Um, but viewing oneself as like a tree in the forest is is difficult, and so like both things can be true that you are you are participating in and replicating systemic harms and abuses, um, but unintentionally so, right? Yeah. Because I did this and I had to make this decision in this moment. Well, like yeah, because you're socialized to do that. Like I mean, you can use higher ed as a perfect example of that. There are plenty of, of us who are not great at our jobs, um, who are part of a systemic problem, but who, if you drill down on as an individual case, might just say like, well, this kid cheated or like right, right. <laughs> my, my uh, administration doesn't, doesn't care about me. So why should I care about anything here? Like, right. you know, so losing sight of like your, your contributions to a systemic problem. Yeah, like I've done, I've done community work here with local police, and it's been uh, with a, a, a disproportionate minority contact initiative. Um, that was just fascinating <laughs> to see um, because it was planned by the county uh, mm-hmm. and and had a lot of uh, input on the curriculum from from multiple local police departments. Um, and hearing their their responses to stuff. Uh, was just so frustrating sometimes. I remember one guy got mad at me and stormed out because his he wanted to to torpedo the whole project to have all the students do one of those like virtual reality police simulator things. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, it'll change everybody's life and they'll understand why we do what we do. And I was like, okay, but there's no like 16 year old black kid simulator that you guys could take. And he was so pissed at me. Oh. <laughs> he stormed <laughs> out of that room. Like, I'm sorry, man. Like, <laughs> it's... So I taught a, a, a history of policing class when I was at the University of Florida. Um, and there were a couple of interesting things. Like, one, uh, I had a cop from, from the Gainesville Police Department come in and, and talk to the class about his experiences. And it was really telling um, and that he was nearing retirement. So he had been, been working for like 20, 25 years. I can't remember exactly how long. And you could just tell he was over it. Um, and, and it was a really interesting look at like the, the, 
humanity behind police officers. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he, he just like spit out a couple of things that were really telling. Like one uh, that stood out to me and a lot of my students was like, I, every time I interact with someone, it's on the worst day of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it, every single interaction, at least from a professional perspective, is, is on the worst day of someone's life. They're yep. victim of, of something horrific or, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're going to, to be arrested for something probably horrific. Uh, he also was, was part of a sex crimes unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would say things like, you know, even when we arrest somebody for, for like child pornography or something like that, it's seen as a success. But from his perspective, he was just frustrated that they didn't do it sooner. Right. So he would think like how many people were victimized before we got to him. So like even what, what should be seen as like a success from, from his standpoint was still also problematic. Um, and then the other thing was how how proud he was when he told us how they denied people their Miranda rights or like got them to voluntarily sign them off. So we did a whole you know deal on the Warren Court in the 1960s and like how it was changing policing and how the response to the Miranda ruling was like no one is ever going to confess ever again because who in their right mind would talk to the police after we tell them they don't have to. Um, and I mean he he was he was proud and bragging about the manipulation that takes place. Uh, and so many of my students after he left were like, whoa, uh, that is insane. It's like, you can see how, how cops are trained to manipulate you. I mean, that, that's part of the process. It's not necessarily um, a great thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's just what they're trained to do. Uh, and so, so many of them were, were like, oh my gosh, like you have to be very careful. Even if a cop just says, well, why don't you just come on down? We need to just go over a couple of things. Would you like a drink? Why don't you just sign this form real quick? Um, so it was really telling, uh, just kind of engaging with police officers, um, not necessarily in an academic way, but just providing them the venue to tell their stories and what you could really pull from that. But students loved it, just loved kind of interacting with, with cops in that way. One of my favorite uh, exercises in class, um, and I, it's very intentional on my part, um, because so often my students... Uh, are are reluctant to talk about the police like critically, um, and so especially the last several years, right? Um, when we come back in the fall, and and there's been another summer of of protests and and riots and stuff, and and I mean when it when it first started, um, it was the only time I ever got course evaluations accusing me of of being anti police um, from students who were. I mean, I had a cohort of guys who were. Uh, born and bred uh, future law enforcement um, and they only wanted to hear that um, you know that that the officer in Ferguson acted appropriately right that was the only thing that they were willing to accept Um, so what I'll do now is say uh, what do you guys think about public safety on campus (laughs) and and the most hardened right wing blue lives matter fifth generation cop kid <laughs> the student in those classes becomes like an anti-fascist <laughs> hardcore um abolish the police like like that is this the, the indoctrination that everybody keeps talking about <laughs> yeah that's that's the indoctrination yep right there and so we'll talk about like well like why what is it that public safety says that they're doing that they're that you think they're not that has um that has, has given you like such a bad opinion of them and they will list off like all kinds of, of things, um, alleged offenses, right? 
and like the other another thing that was that came out of that DMC project was a, a probation officer who himself was a former chief who like pulled me aside one day and just like went off on this rant about how the problem with police anymore isn't that they're is that they're only attracting people who want to be bureaucrats, right? So nobody wants to do the job. Everybody wants to to put in as much time as necessary to get promoted and get a desk job and then hopefully get promoted even further up. That's all anybody cares about anymore. I'm like, well, but look at the system. <laughs> you guys allowed look at how you guys allowed yourself to be changed in the last fifty years. Right. Well, I also just think like you know, here one of the big employers in the county north, which is just rural, which is just as rural as Henry County, probably more so, is a, a private prison. Uh, and, you know, and they're like, we're looking for corrections officers. We pay you like fifteen bucks an hour. You know, and you're like, well, of course, no one wants to do that and wants to get a desk job because that's where you can at least make a little bit more money, uh, and you won't be quite as exposed to dealing with with like the harsh realities of kind of being a law enforcement officer or uh, you know a corrections officer and things like that surprise me at all who doesn't want uh, a job with more pay that's probably uh, a little less problematic in terms of like your day-to-day lived experience yeah uh that's safer just in general yeah <laughs> yeah much, no much safer safer uh and and better on your mental health you know even with added responsibilities you're not dealing with that sort of uh potential for violence on an on an everyday basis um so to get back on track, <laughs> to get back on track. Um, so I guess, uh, so have you been able to, to teach? I mean, you said you teach classes on, on policing, right? So I did, uh, at, mm-hmm. at UF, I could, um, you mm-hmm. know, I was a graduate student there. So we got to teach, you know, the survey courses and then we could propose an upper division course. So that was one. And then I was a visitor at Rollins college, which is like a small liberal arts college in Orlando, uh, for two years. I didn't get to teach policing courses there, but I kind of came up with some of my own classes. Mm-hmm. Um, one was on uh, history of deviance, um, mm-hmm. or deviance in American history, and then violence in American history. That kind of brought some of those questions in there. Another one was U.S. history since 1945 that allowed us to, to explore that a little bit more fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm at a state college in Florida. We call them state colleges; they're community colleges, so two-year mm-hmm. degrees. Uh, mostly what I teach is surveys. I did get to teach an African-American history course uh, a couple of times, but those are harder to, to fill just because students want to get those, you know, kind of gen ed requirements as quickly as possible. But I do get to incorporate some of my, my stuff into the survey courses, particularly when we talk about Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. A little bit not difficult. It just takes a little bit uh, more creativity mm-hmm. on my part to kind of integrate some of the criminal justice stuff in it into those broad surveys, you know, where you're going from you know, the beginning of uh, the North American continent to 1877. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I empathize. Um, so when you have been able to, to work in some of your, your scholarship, um, you know, above and beyond the sort of stuff specific to the, the LaBelle lynching, um, like how do, how do students respond to this? So I guess it kind of depends. Uh, I, I, I study, you know, crime and violence and I'm kind of used to dealing with, with violence uh, quite frequently. You know, I, I read police homicide reports before we were talking. I was going through police homicide reports as part of this project. It's like building this database mm-hmm. um, of different kinds of killings that took place. Respond. 
know, I, I've seen lynching photographs uh, multiple times. You know, it's, it's not something that, that is even all that jarring to me anymore. And so sometimes mm-hmm. I have to be a little careful with how I introduce some of these things that like me and other scholars who, who deal with this stuff relatively frequently, mm-hmm. uh, you, you become somewhat desensitized to never completely, but somewhat. Um, so uh, I, I've been able to introduce things like lynching photographs into the classroom. Um, this, this is, it's tough sometimes. So I always provide students with plenty of advanced notice that this is the assignment that we're going to do. Um, and I try to replicate um, the without sanctuary exhibition that, that was traveling, I think in the early two thousands, where it was just a bunch of lynching postcards mm-hmm. uh, kind of displayed. Um, and so I, I have lynching photographs. I've, I've done it a couple different ways where I find the photographs and then I just hang them up around the classroom and students in the class walking around looking and reflecting kind of silently. And then we just have like 30 minutes at the end of class to kind of talk about our reactions to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also done it where students find the photographs themselves. Um, and then they print out a justification like why, why is this the one you chose? What stands out to you when those are all hung up? Mm-hmm. Um, but I always try to give students plenty of advance notice, like two weeks in advance. Like this is what we're going to be doing. If you want to opt out of the assignment, that's fine with me. Um, if if they all say, you know, this is absolutely not something we're interested in doing, I'll usually find like one lynching photograph, and I kind of take the body out, just look at the, the crowd, mm. um, which is oftentimes what what students focus on anyway. Yeah, just to kind of remove some of that that that, that graphic violence. Yeah, there and, and can be really problematic for some people. Um, should be problematic. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, so that's something that 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 students typically respond to pretty well. Um. The first time I ever did it was was in an African American history course. It was a a night class that that attracted a lot of like older students, kind of non traditional students, professionals, and things like mm-hmm. that. Um. And the response was was really moving. This was a, a two and a half hour class, so we spent like the first hour looking wow. and reflecting silently, and then the the second hour. Uh, just kind of talking collectively. And one of the students um, who, who was a black woman, I said, you know, at first I was really mad that uh, we were doing this. And she said she spent like the two weeks kind of prepping herself, looking at some of the stuff and kind of crying and talking to her family. Um, and then in class, she said, but, I, you know, like at, at the end of all of this, I'm really glad that I did and that, that we were able to have these conversations um, and, and engage with this stuff that's really tough, and sad and heartbreaking. Um, so after that, I, I felt like there was something to this, right? This, this wasn't just the typical, like, oh, this was an interesting assignment, but this was like a, a personal, visceral reaction to it that kind of took several weeks to process. And so um, I think there's a lot of value in doing things like that, but you just have to make sure that you adequately prepare students for what they're going to be doing. Um, you know, I, I do enrollment students sometimes. They're 16 years old, and so um, it be a thing. Um, the homicide reports are actually really fascinating. That's, that's, that's kind of an easier way to engage with issues related to violence, but um, I've actually used them not so much in classes that focus on violence, but in courses um, on like the Jim Crow South mm-hmm. um, or when we're talking about Jim Crow, because the interesting thing, and you may know this, but uh, a lot of, of kind of working class black people didn't leave a lot in, in the historical record. They didn't write diaries. They, they weren't writing memoirs. They didn't write in, in newspapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do show up in court records. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you kind of get an idea of why people are killing each other, how they're killing each other. But also there's these narratives about what they were doing, what their jobs were, where they lived. Um, and there's this really fascinating way to kind of look at life in the Jim Crow South. And so I've actually incorporated those um, into courses on, on 
Jim Crow or, or portions of courses about Jim Crow to just get a sense of like, I ask students, how could you use these not, not as, as a look into the criminal justice system or violence, but a look into life for working class African Americans or working class white people, because those are the people most likely to show up in homicide reports. Mm-hmm. Um, what are they doing before they get killed um, or before they kill somebody um, and things like that? Yeah. I mean, is it, would I, would I be incorrect to assume, and, I, and this may be based on something I, I saw somewhere some at some point in my life, but like a lot of that information about the life of black families at the, in the turn of the century, I mean, that's all in oral histories, right? That have been passed down family to family that just haven't been recorded anywhere. Yeah, I mean, there's certain there's certainly an aspect of, of kind of doing the oral history behind it. I mean, there are ways we can look into that too. I think the WPA has has some stuff where they did interviews with people. Um, I think the book is uh, by Christine Stansell, and she she looked at the the lived experience of like working class women, in New York City or something like that, and and it was this this really kind of fascinating look. And I think she relied almost solely, or at least mostly, on on court records mm-hmm. uh, because it, it it is one of the only places you can get a glimpse into like someone who who's not really planning what they're writing. Uh, or what's being recorded, at least in, in, in the cases I look at, it's, it's cops writing down, all right, what did this witness tell me? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them are, are really fascinating. It's like, you know, I'm hanging out with this person. This is my common-law wife. This is her brother-in-law. We all live together. Um, we went to this cafe, and then we went took a cab to another cafe, and then we came back home, and then this fight occurred, and someone got killed. But mm-hmm. uh, there's these interesting narratives about what's going on before that really gives you a glimpse into the life of a, a certain a population that, that doesn't necessarily always uh, have their stories reported in Poland. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a unique way to, to, to get into some of those narratives. So I'm curious. So uh, a lot of our work seems to, do- to dovetail from like in some ways, right? Um, so I know how I got into this, but I'm curious, like, like what, what drew you <laughs> to this work? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't want to say it was just a, a, a series of accidents, but um, I was always really interested in like revolutionary time periods, things where everything is kind of upended um, and, and people have to respond and deal and live through that. So um, I didn't want to do anything about wars. Like I, I don't really care all that much about the American Revolution. Um, you know, people debate how revolutionary was it really um, and things like that. But I thought what's more revolutionary than emancipation? Right? Mm-hmm. Like especially in the South, this is this is a complete upending uh, of of social and economic and political systems, at least for a period, and then it kind mm-hmm. of kind of settles back into uh, that, that that kind of racial hierarchy again. But um, so I went to my master's program, just interested in that. I was like, I'm interested in like Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and stuff. And my advisor kind of brought up the idea, like, well, what about lynching? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know anything about that. I just kind of started looking into that, um, and that just spun into looking at criminal justice more broadly and policing. Um, and then, then after, uh, you know, the Trayvon Martin case, and then that first kind of real um, outburst of, of that Black Lives Matter protest movement in like 2012, 2013, 2014, um, I knew that kind of looking into policing was something that, that, that needed to be done. It, policing scholarship was really popular, at least in, in a historical perspective in like the 1960s and 1970s, but a lot of them are really institutional. Um, and then it kind of fell out of favor for, for some reason. Um, and you're starting to see a resurgence. There's, there's, there's been some really great stuff. Um, Simon Balto's book on, on policing in Chicago from the red summer up through, um, black power. Um, there's another book, policing Los Angeles or something like that, that 
that's really kind of fascinating. But there wasn't all that much going on in terms of policing in the South. So I thought uh, this might be be a better way to explore issues related to criminal justice than lynching, which which, which kind of rises and then falls and, and, and doesn't completely go away, but but certainly isn't as pronounced um, in, in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s when a lot of these uh, kind of radical changes to to the Jim Crow system, or at least challenges to the Jim Crow system, uh, are are really coming to the fore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, kind of, kind of just a, a random introduction to the idea of criminal justice and race in the Jim Crow period by an, uh, an advisor who who was maybe uh, had had more foresight than I originally appreciated, <laughs> as they they often uh, <laughs> tend to do, right? Tend right, to do. right. <laughs> Uh, that's interesting, though. Like, I I didn't know. Uh, so, I mean, I don't I don't come at it from like history of policing background. Uh, when I have to talk about the history of policing, I I probably do a, a tremendous injustice in my classes and say, well, Night Watchmen, Pinkertons, Fugitive Slave Patrols. See you next week. Uh, <laughs> but, like, but why do you think that, that it fell out of favor, like academically? Because I, I have a I have a theory <laughs> that that might be a little conspiratorial. But I'm I'm curious, like, why do you was it just something that was just not? Uh, what was the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's just just like a fad. Do you think or? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, again, a lot of the early ones were really institutional. So, you know, here's how the police developed. Here's how they changed over time. And, you know, I think it comes out of the 1960s moment when, when kind of like now, right? Yeah. Police violence is at the forefront. People want to know about this institution. Mm-hmm. And it's not like all policing studies went away, but you see this real kind of outpouring of, police, you know, New York and, and places in Los Angeles, like that. Mm-hmm. Houston, like Houston. Um, I think kind of the institutional histories, I mean, from my perspective, aren't the most engaging. Um, mm. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a little boring and you miss out on some of the nitty gritty stuff. Um, but I think as, as kind of concerns over policing maybe waned a little bit in the 1980s, uh, 1990s, so too did, did the kind of historical look into it. But also legal history has kind of fallen out of favor. Uh, like, I don't think many people brand themselves as legal historians exclusively. Mm-hmm. And on the job market, you rarely see a position for a legal historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I think questions are about policing and how you can kind of use policing to look at, at, at social history also, mm-hmm. uh, maybe we're seeing a resurgence in, in, in interest um, mm-hmm. in some of those things. Um, hopefully, this will be a more sustained kind of period of, of policing scholarship. But some of the stuff that's come out lately is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. Um, okay. So, uh, one of the things that I want to do with this podcast moving forward, um, cause I've made public scholarship such an important part of my career. Um, and as you, as you well know, um, and this is not like a reflection of you, but just academia very broadly, right? We, we tend to write stuff and, and study things in very abstract ways that are not easily accessible by the public. So um, if somebody found this on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from <laughs> uh, and they've made it this far <laughs> into our conversation, what would you want them to take away um, about your, your work? So I guess it kind of depends. Um, but one of the things I've, I've tried to do lately is be a little bit more publicly facing in, in not just scholarship, but in the things I do and where I put them. So I've done some op-eds in our, in our like Fort Myers uh, newspaper. I've done some things on the Washington Post. I've got this digital history project, lynching and labelle.com uh, that, that students kind of collaborated with me on. I'm doing this, this, this scholarship for Selma Daniels to kind of raise awareness about her story, but also do some positive things in the local community. And then, 
academic book coming out, Race, Crime, and Policing in the Jim Crow South. And so um, I think the main takeaway uh, from, I guess, the collective work that I've done is just, one, these these things matter, right? The, the history of race and criminal justice and violence and policing in particular matter. I don't think that's a hard sell these days, um, but at least when, when, when I first started, uh, perhaps there was a little more convincing that was necessary. Uh, I'd also like like people to understand that the the roots to some of the problems that we see today are are kind of historically based and makes sense to historians. That's kind of how we sell ourselves. But uh, I don't know if the wider public necessarily appreciates just how rooted in the history some of these things are. Um, with my book that's coming out in July, I mean, I I trace the history of policing from 1920 to 1945 in the Jim Crow South. And you see a lot of the same complaints coming from the black community about how police officers are engaging with their community through violence in particular. And there's even this, these, these calls for what, what we would identify today as like the defund movement, right? Fund after school programs, better jobs for, for, for black communities, a removal of the restrictions that are being placed uh, on, on the black community via Jim Crow laws and customs. Um, and a kind of just more robust social service that, that, that will actually mitigate some of the problems in the black community and make policing safer and the lives of black people better um, and, and, and freer from violence and, and, and potential confrontations with the police. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, at least in, in my work, I want people to understand that it's okay to recognize some of the problems that, that were in the past and kind of bleed into the present. And also still have an appreciation for some of the good things that have happened in American history. I think sometimes historians are painted, and I'm just rightfully so, as people who just want to like destroy narratives um, in American history, which is important, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, I think it's possible to kind of do both. Uh, be like, look, there are some really bad things that happened in, a, in America's past that we need to grapple with because they affect the present uh, in really problematic ways. There's also some really positive things about. Uh, the past in the United States and the globe more broadly that, that, that can be recognized as well. Um, and so that's, that's what I try to do in some of my public work. I try to engage with these controversial issues in ways that are perhaps not going to be immediately alienating to some people, um, but also encourage them to think a little bit more deeply about some of the problems that we see today and how they're historically based. And then in class, one of the things that, that my students really love and, and what I try to get them to grapple with when, when, when I emphasize nuance, I always just want them to know that, that life is nuanced, history is nuanced. But we spend a lot of time on Thomas Jefferson and just how do we grapple with Thomas Jefferson, who does really good things and then has, at best, a consensual sexual relationship with a teenager. Um, at worst, he's raping a teenager um, that, that he owns. Uh, and so how do we grapple with someone like that? And so I have them. Um, create their own monuments to Thomas Jefferson. You know, they're, they're, they're like quick artistic renditions. It's not anything yeah. that's going to go up in a, a national mall or anything, but just, just kind of grappling with this messiness. Can you both appreciate something that's positive while also recognizing the really problematic aspects of that very same individual's past? And so that would be my main takeaway to anybody listening um, or anybody who reads any of the stuff that, that I put out there is this kind of messiness is okay um this this nuance is okay and my job or at least my goal is not to just make everybody hate the united states but instead have a greater appreciation for this this problematic history the positive sides of this history and see how they kind of work together simultaneously uh to create both good things and and really problematic things that that we should strive for 
Yeah, if stuff wasn't messy and nuanced, uh, we <laughs> there would be no need for us, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, and especially in Florida. I mean, I don't know if if you all keep up with the news in Florida, but um, I think our governor has presidential aspirations, and so he's really playing to the base down here. But there's a lot of stuff coming out about like professors are are just about you know Marxist indoctrination. Um, that schools are 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 just kind of teeming with liberals that that don't really provide venues for uh, kind of conflicting viewpoints. They just passed a a, a law that basically is going to have students provide feedback on the political leanings of their professors or something like that, which is is just kind of really bizarre um, because they want to make sure that all viewpoints are are, are being represented, which I think is hilarious. Uh, I can't wait for business schools to start bringing in. Uh, Marxist economists and, and, and communist business professors to talk about the benefits of communism. Um, but, you know, I feel like, like in a lot of ways, at least in Florida, our profession is kind of under attack and it's under attack by people who don't necessarily engage with, with professors all that frequently. And so I kind of want to break apart that stereotype. Like, my goal is not indoctrination. My goal is to get people to think critically about the past uh, and about the present. Um, in ways that I think are beneficial for for them and for the larger kind of community. Um, so, you know, locally, that would be great if people maybe came away with that. Too. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Brandon. Hey, thanks for having me, Andrew. It was, it was a whole lot of fun. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show. Um, as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us um, positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, um, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at UntenuredTracks or me at HeyDrWill. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.